I think it was a wrong turn that our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence took with the automobile to turn to reasonableness because that has basically transformed the Fourth Amendment from a guarantor of our privacy into an authorization of discretionary policing. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and I have been accused of being really into esoteric histories. There is a time when I was in grad school where I made a car full of people listen to a podcast on the history of water fountains, and apparently there were differing levels of interest in that topic in the car. And so when I told my family over the holidays that I was working on an episode on the history and implications of traffic enforcement, many eyes rolled. But that doesn't do this episode justice. I am really thrilled to be bringing you a conversation with Sarah Sayo, the author of Policing the Open Road, How Cars Transformed American Freedom. And I loved this conversation for a couple reasons. One, I do love learning the history of things like what happened when the automobile swept into American culture. But it's also really important to understand that history because the way that the law developed to accommodate cars laid the foundation for a complete re-understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And it also has serious implications for the disparate and discriminatory policing that so many people of color experience in the context of traffic stops today. So I'm thrilled to be bringing you this conversation. Thanks. I have no idea if, if, if this will work, but I was thinking of starting with basically a lightning round. And so I thought we could go through some of the things that officers could do during a traffic stop and invite the listener to think about whether or not they know the answer, more importantly than whether or not you know the answer. So I'm going to just ask you a bunch of scenarios. And so first off, can the police stop you and pull you over for a broken taillight? Yes, definitely. It's one of the most common reasons for a traffic stop. Can they stop you and pull you over for failure to signal 100 yards before your turn? Yes. This was one of the infractions that Sandra Blonde made for when she was pulled over. And then can they stop you and pull you over for something dangling from your rearview mirror? Like a, one yes. of the tree air fresheners? Yes. That's the reason why Dante Wright was pulled over. Okay. And when they stop you, can they order you to give your identification? Yes, they can. Can they order you out of the car? Yes, they can. And the can justification they, is officer safety. Okay. Can they search your person when they order you out of the car? That depends. They need a minimum of reasonable suspicion that the person is armed and dangerous. During this stop, can they search the passenger compartment of the car? Yes, they can. They can, and it's called a Terry Frisk of a car. And then can they search the trunk of the car? Now under, so this is where it gets a little dicey. I believe now under uh, Gantt, they need separate justification to search the trunk. Can they search a passenger in the car? So not the driver. Can they search their person? Yes, for reasonable suspicion that the person is armed and dangerous. And then can they bring a drug sniffing dog to the scene to search the car? Yes, they can. Okay. Oh, here's a, here's a, here's a bonus question. If they ask you to search the car, do you have to say yes? 
you do not have to say yes, but most people say yes. Okay. So the, obviously the reason why I asked that is because uh, although you unsurprisingly get a hundred percent on our lightning round pop quiz, I think it's probably for most people listening to it, you know, it, no one knows all those answers, right. Except for constitutional law experts. And so it sort of encapsulates the state of traffic enforcement law today, which is that it is extremely murky and therefore allows quite a lot of room for, for discretion. And so can I say something about that point too? Yes, please, please. Which is what I found really interesting was after Sandra Blonde's stop and subsequent death at the jail cell, the New York Times did an article asking three or four law professors, and I think practicing defense lawyers, about the legality of the various actions that the state trooper took. And there were some disagreements among these experts about what the officer could and couldn't do. And so I think you're definitely right to say this area of law um, is really murky. The questions you asked me are well-settled law, but there's a lot of the interactions of, between police officers and individuals that are murky, which is why there's at least one Fourth Amendment case that the Supreme Court has to decide every year. So here's, I, I'm going to sort of signpost a more sort of conspicuously, I guess, than I normally would, but because I think there's so many meaty areas to cover. I love the historical component because it leads directly to where we are today and it influences other areas of Fourth Amendment law that has implications for for new technology and the development of new law. So I want to start with the history. Can you tell us about American life before and after the automobile, especially as it relates to our relationship with law enforcement? So I would say that lives were slower People were more tethered to their smaller communities because travel took a longer time. And specifically with respect to the relationship between individuals and the police, there were, it was a completely foreign country in a sense. Most towns and cities in the United States didn't have large police forces. And even the large cities like New York, Philly, Boston, LA, they had, you know, they had a lot of, a lot more police officers in their departments, but still not the same ratio in terms of officers to residents that we see today. So a lot smaller departments. I think even more importantly, police didn't proactively investigate crime. They usually waited for uh, a warrant that somebody would bring and to serve it. Most criminal investigations were undertaken by insurance companies going after theft when a, a, a stolen item that was insured was brought to their attention. And also, crucially, that meant that the police didn't really bother kind of the middle class individual. Uh, they really focused their attention on minorities poor people, immigrants, those who were on the uh, margins of society. And so then the car proliferates. And how does that relationship start to look different? Everything changes. So cars were importantly mass produced. And so uh, a lot of people were uh, buying cars and driving them. I would say by uh, the tw- uh, 1920s, about or 1930s, about 50% of families owned at least one car or something like that. The numbers are really incredibly, they pick up really quickly. And all of a sudden, cars just inundated main streets that were meant for trolleys at most, 
or horse-drawn carriages. Children used to play in the streets. The streets were before cars. It was up. It was for the entire public. And all of a sudden, all of these cars, these streets, creating traffic. People didn't have the same uniform driving patterns, and so it created traffic jams. It created lots of accidents. People died. This was a huge crisis throughout the country. And so what? Cities and towns did throughout the country was to enact a lot of laws, and we see this kind of knee-jerk reaction today when there's a tragedy, a law gets passed, right? And so this is kind of how a lot of the traffic laws at first were passed. You know, there's a tragedy in terms of like making a right turn, so they, there'd be a law passed or regulation passed about how to do turns. And so there was a lot of laws. They weren't uniform throughout the country. One county and next to another county, they might have different traffic laws. People didn't know all of the laws that were passed or didn't realize the laws would change when they went from one jurisdiction to the next. So a lot of people were breaking the laws for various reasons. One, because we still violate speeding laws and those were the same impulses that people had back a uh, hundred years ago. Also, people didn't know what the laws were. And it was just kind of an enforcement problem. So how did they enforce laws then? At first, towns and cities thought they, laws could be enforced the way laws were enforced before the 19th century. So let me explain how that happened. So like I said, the police didn't really get involved in enforcing laws or norms or anything like that. A lot of it was what historians call voluntary uh, association or self-government. Norms were enforced through civic organizations like trade unions or other social fraternities. Churches was another big community organization that enforced norms. So at first, traffic laws were enforced in these ways. <laughs> Ministers would preach to their congregation, obey traffic laws, obey safety rules. Um, various associational governance organizations like the AAA that we still have today tried to encourage their members to obey traffic laws. And what they quickly realized was that people hated being cited for traffic violations. And it created a lot of hostility between the enforcer and the driver. And so the move to rely on police officers happened pretty quickly. And they realized a, a few things. One is that these people needed more power over the citizen driver to enforce traffic laws. So their power was increased to the movement to professionalize them. It was important at this time because they were dealing more and more with what the middle-class ordinary citizen that hadn't before cars interacted with the police in that way. And so the, the, the emphasis on professionalism, which meant dealing with citizens in a courteous and professional manner. And I argue in my book that emphasis on professional courtesy wouldn't have happened if the police continue to police the poor or the immigrants or minorities. It really happened because they were more and more called on to citizen drivers. So those are some of the big changes that happened because cars were such a huge change in American life. And one of the things, this is a little bit of a side note, but I love the idea of a society that has, that is actively trying to figure out how to manage this huge disruption, right? So it's, or is it going to be citizens policing citizens, or is it going to be police policing citizens? And I just want to pull out a few things from the book that made me chuckle. It's like license plates. They all could, because cars were mass produced, you couldn't distinguish between them. They all looked the same. So someone had to come up with the idea of license plates or what color was going to mean 
go versus stop like that was different in different jurisdictions whereas now we think of those as basically universal and they are basically universal across the globe um trying to think of other ones that oh ticketing right the uh, just things that yes that's a big one yeah i'm, I'm trying to I, i'm just curious if, I, if i'm missing any ones that stick out to you of just things that are so quotidian to us today that in fact someone had to come up with at some point and they had to decide this is how we're going to regulate ourselves yeah, yeah, and even like painting lines down the middle of the road. That yeah. didn't exist before cars. But going back to what you said about traffic tickets, that was a huge development because with that phenomenon, you can see the 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 way that the criminal law shifted over to a regulatory manner. Or another way to put it, you can kind of see how the criminal has to become looser be, uh, because we're dealing with a mass number of people. Because a traffic violation is a criminal violation. And when there's when we're talking about a criminal violation, that starts the entire criminal process, right? You have to receive a summons, you have to go to court, uh, you either plead guilty or you go to trial and all the due process of uh, guarantees kick in. That To do that for every violator of the speeding limit would, <laughs> would halt traffic right there because you just can't do that for everybody. And so very quickly, towns innovated and try to figure out an expedited process to deal with all of these violations. And so I think New York City started handing out summons cards. So instead of, you know, having to start the whole process when you get pulled over on the street, the police officers would just give you a summons card and say, show up to the court by a certain time. And then that evolved into the, a traffic citation where it's basically an expedited guilty plea. You just pay the fine without having to, you know, appear before court, get, you know, your arraignment and all of that. It's just bypassing the whole entire judicial process and you're just paying the fine because the police officer said you violated the speeding law. And so it was a really interesting moment for me to see that legal scholars, police officers, no one really grappled with what they were doing to the criminal process when it came to traffic violations because of the, the practical need to just deal with all of these violations very quickly. Yeah. And I want to also touch on this idea of universality, something you said earlier. Is it fair to say that this is the first time where average citizens are just routinely breaking the law? Like everyone is breaking the law and now it's a question of whom to enforce the law against versus say before the automobile when as you said police were only brought in and sort of what you'd think of as the sort of traditional crimes that you learn in first year criminal law that's a really interesting question before traffic laws were alcohol laws mm. right and and so in that sense alcohol prohibition laws were the first to actually where a lot of people just violated from your rich person to you know the the immigrant making their own wine at home. And Americans finally said, I've, we've had enough and we don't like to be policed. And so prohibition was repealed after 13 years. I think in Iowa, there was a proposal to prohibit the, the sale of automobiles to prevent automobile deaths. That was quickly a fringe idea. It's just, for one thing, people couldn't imagine the repeal of automobile travel, which meant ultimately that traffic laws had to be enforced and it justified the incredible growth and expansion of policing in the United States. And I think that is the key difference between the prohibition experiment and the automobile. I feel like I could spend 
our, this entire conversation talking about the history, but we need to get up to today. I think the bridge there is to talk about the Fourth Amendment and how as people started to interact more and more with the police in their cars, courts started to set guardrails on those interactions. And so can you describe how the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence evolved as cars became more and more the locus of interaction with police? So the Supreme Court and judges throughout the country completely changed the Fourth Amendment and the common law to accommodate cars. And so let me just quickly summarize what the common law is, which doesn't take long. The common law was developed before cars. And so this is the, the, the strict limits on the police's power, right? For a police officer to stop or see someone or something, they needed a warrant. And under the common law, there were a few exceptions to that warrant requirement, which is if they have probable cause that a felony occurred or, or if there's a, an officer sees a, a misdemeanor occurring or in some jurisdictions, it had to be a disturbance of the peace. And so those were the only exceptions for when an officer could stop somebody. The problem with cars is that because cars are basically large containers <laughs> that hide things, right? And really the, the crime that one would do with a car is the getaway car, driving a car with contraband or something in it, right? And so the officers didn't really have probable cause that a felony was being committed when they saw a car being driven across the road or the highway. And they weren't really seeing a misdemeanor taking place. All they were seeing was a person driving a car. And so if you applied the common law to cars, that, that pretty much meant officers couldn't really stop anybody uh, in their cars. And so what judges did, what Chief Justice Taft did in the 1925 case, Carroll versus the United States, which actually came to the Supreme Court in 1923, but he had such a hard time figuring out what to do. They had re-argument and decided it a year later, which is basically to say, you know what, for cars, we're going to say you don't need a warrant if an officer has um, probable cause that to believe that a crime is being committed. And so basically that one, got rid of the warrant requirement. And two, I think the particular crime in the Carroll case was a misdemeanor, not a felony. That basically meant that the officer didn't have to observe a misdemeanor being committed, all that an officer had to believe that a crime was being committed. And so the key move here is to shift what an officer can and cannot do based on the reason to believe. And today we understand this whole principle as the reasonableness standard. And more the, the way that Fourth Amendment law shifts over the 20th century is to ask is what the police doing reasonable as a way to decide whether it's constitutional under the fourth amendment. So just to sort of punctuate to, to pull out two things that you just said, basically now, instead of a judge determining ahead of time, whether or not there's probable cause for a warrant to issue, the decider is now the police officer in the moment, right? That exactly. He, you know, the, he is the one who's basically going on his hunch. So I thought that was a really interesting point that you made. The second thing to pull out is that this entire jurisprudence evolves basically to accommodate police power, right? That it's the police that are doing this enforcement versus say any other possible officer or whatever. And that it's based on, I always read cases 
that always say the touchstone of the fourth amendment is reasonableness. Reasonableness, yeah. And to me, I used to, you know, I'd, I'd throw that into a brief or whatever, and I'd be as if I was citing back to 1780, whatever itself. But in fact, this is a 20th century idea, right? It is. It was an innovation that Chief Justice Taft fell upon to figure out what to do with the automobile. And I, I want to follow up on what you just said. I think what you, the two points you made are really important because what could just, what could Chief Justice Taft have done instead? He could have just relied on the exigency exception. So an exigency exception is to say there are certain emergency cases where an officer cannot get a warrant and we're just going to excuse uh, those situ emergency situations from the warrant requirement. And exigency suggests exceptional, so very few limited exceptions to the warrant requirement. And there was language in the Carroll opinion that seemed to suggest that that was where Chief Justice Taft was heading. And so one way that he could have crafted the, the rule of decision in the Carroll case to say, if there's no time to get a warrant because an automobile travels very fast, then, then the exigency exception applies. But if there is time to get a warrant, officers should still get a warrant. He could have said that instead it was a whole, it was not just a wholesale exception for cars. He also lowered the standard to, from knowledge that a crime was being committed to an officer's belief that a crime was com being committed. And importantly, what you said, who makes that decision? Not judges, but the police officer on the road. And all, all, of course, that can get litigated afterwards. We have motions to suppress, to litigate those questions. But the, the reason why the reasonableness standard gets watered down is because when a judge is deciding a motion to suppress and sees evidence of guilt, and the question is whether that evidence of guilt should be excluded or not. Which because is because an officer. Just to be clear, that's how the Fourth Amendment issues are raised, right? It's defendants have to raise them through a motion to suppress evidence that came out from a search that they're saying. Was exactly. Yeah. I mean, just imagine our, our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence gets decided in this context <laughs> where there is someone who is who had been searched and the evidence found. That's the context in which judges are deciding reasonableness. And in that context, whatever the officer did is more prone to seem reasonable. And because uh, cases get decided post hoc, but after the fact, and judges defer increasingly to police officers' uh, training and experience, which are two magic words that we see a lot in Fourth Amendment cases, the reasonableness standard has gotten watered down over the 20th century. And I think one of the Obviously, there's tons of automobile cases out there, but one of the powerful lines that you draw in the book is that that is the foundation upon which the F Fourth Amendment doctrine more broadly gets watered down. Yeah, get, yeah, it gets watered down. So can you just sort of draw the line from these automobile cases to say stop and frisk and how they laid the foundation for that type of policing as well? Yeah, so... A lot of people forget this, but Terry versus Ohio, the, the only legal precedent that it cites for legitimizing stop and frisk is Carroll versus the United States, the automobile exception case from 1925. Because Terry does exactly, Chief Justice Warren does exactly what Chief Justice Taft did. 
in Carroll, which is to say, so what Chief Justice Taft did was to say a traffic stop is, is a not, it's, it's a stop and a search under the Fourth Amendment, but different kind of stop and search that we're going to apply a lower standard reason to believe. Chief Justice Warren does the exact same thing with respect to stop and frisks. He says, stop and frisks are searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment, but we're going to apply a lower standard of reasonable suspicion to them because there is a law enforcement need or justification to conduct stop and, stop and frisks. And so the, the, the two decisions are analytically mirrored. And of course, Terry versus Ohio cites Carroll versus United States for the authority to basically create a new category of searches and seizures and apply, and not just that, but also apply a lower standard to them. And to go beyond stop and frisk, uh, a lot of Fourth Amendment doctrines that we don't associate with cars today, if you read those cases, come up in the context of a tra traffic stop. So for example, one of the lightning round questions he asked was, you know, do you have to consent if a police officer asks? To search your car? And the answer is no, you don't have to consent. But there was a decision that the Supreme Court made in Schneckloss Bustamante. Wait, which one? I forget which name comes first. Yeah. The Bustamante case. I think Bustamante well, comes second, but I could be wrong. Okay. Well, so the Supreme Court decides that police officers do not need to tell drivers that they can say no, that they have a right to say no. To, uh, to a request to search their car. And that case is all about being pulled over for a traffic stop and there's too many people in there, uh, too many brown people in there, so the officer suspects something and asks to search the car. And the petitioner, you know, even helpfully opens the trunk and lets, lets the officer search and, and the officer finds evidence. That is the case that we cite for saying consent searches are legitimate and not only that, officers don't have to tell people that they can say uh, no, they have the right to say no to a search. And that applies outside of the car context. So that's one case where the Fourth Amendment doctrine changes in the context of cars. Another, another doctrine that we don't really associate with cars is the search incident to an arrest, the Robinson case. That case also happens in the context of a traffic stop. And so a lot of these Fourth Amendment doctrines that we just to associate with general police powers to do something, if we look into the cases and see what the justifications were for expanding the police's power, they occurred in the context of a traffic stop. And just to be clear, a search incident to arrest is if you're going to be arrested, the police can search your whole person, right? Yeah, they can search your person and they can search your pockets. They can search containers found inside your pockets. It's a pretty intrusive search. Okay. Um, More intrusive than a frisk. So before we leave the Fourth Amendment, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was the fact that the court ended up going with abandoning the sort of categorical rule, right? And, and saying you either can or you can't search someone's car in the same way that you can or you can't search someone's home and ended up going with a sort of procedural approach, which leads to, you know, the lightning round that we started off with of all these little rules that you end up you know, litigating every year in a slightly different variation. And I wonder if you have a thought about how the world might look different or what any critiques of that choice to go from just creating a rule around automobiles to instead creating this sort of mushy, you know, reasonableness analysis that will, will that will never end. Well, 
law enforcement view the reasonable standard as granting them discretionary power. And they now view the Fourth Amendment as their tool in investigating crime, especially during a traffic stop. And so it's the Fourth Amendment is supposed to be a guarantee of people's rights. Now it's flipped and law enforcement see that as not a limit, but a tool for them to use uh, because a lot of what they do gets justified as being reasonable. And so in, in that sense, it, it legitimizes and authorizes their discretionary power. And so I think it was a wrong turn that our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence took with the automobile to turn to reasonableness because that that has basically transformed the Fourth Amendment from a guarantor of our privacy into an authorization of discretionary policing. And what would it look like to have done the opposite or, you know, to have, have done it differently? Well, it would not have hemmed in the police's investigation completely. It's certainly more than it does today. But if they had probable cause that a felony uh, was being committed, they could still make a stop without a warrant. I don't think it would have affected their investigatory efforts too much because, and here I'm citing social science research, not historical research, because counterfactuals <laughs> aren't really our thing. But according to, to social science research, the hit rates of investigatory traffic stops are really, really low. And not just that, but the effectiveness, the hit rates of, of a stop and frisk based on reasonable suspicion versus based on probable cause type factors, it turns out the police have a better hit rate when they use a probable cause type factor rather than a reasonable suspicion type factor. And it goes back to what the NAACP argued in their amicus brief in the Supreme Court case in uh, Terry versus Ohio. They argued that reasonable suspicion, it seems like a nice compromise between requiring probable cause versus not allowing stop and frisks at all. But, but they argued that on the street, when an officer encounters a Black person, reasonable suspicion disappears into basically racial stereotypes of black Blacks being criminal. And so it doesn't do a lot of work in informing the police whether somebody's an actual criminal suspect or not. And that has borne out to be true. My colleague, Jeffrey Fagan, analyzed data from New York, stop and frisk data from New York City saying reasonable suspicion is really ineffective. Even more effective is just to hold police officers to a probable cause standard. And the reason is because at least for probable cause, they have to articulate what exactly gave them a reason to believe that a crime had been committed or was being committed. And that's much more accurate than any hunch-like stereotype-based factors that can um, satisfy the reasonable suspicion standard. So in the end, I think if we had stuck to 19th century common law categorical approach to automobiles and the Fourth Amendment, I don't think it would have hampered police efforts too much. And for sure, it would have protected Fourth Amendment rights a lot more. And it would have avoided the greatly disparate and discriminatory policing that's taking place now. So I want to bring us sort of to today. And can you describe, you know, there's traffic violations, and then there's criminal investigations. And we've sort of been 
throwing those two together in the same interaction, but can you actually describe how traffic enforcement is now part of a criminal investigation, how it's a criminal investigatory tool and how it's used in today's law enforcement regimes? So police departments thought about this from the 1920s because they've realized when they can stop a car for safety inspections, they can also look for evidence of crime like alcohol at the same time. And so they understood from the get-go that the efficiencies of doing two for one. We're going to look for safety violations as well as for evidence of crime. And that's part of the reason why I think I haven't found any sources explaining why the police would be relied on to enforce traffic laws, other than that they were already managing kind of the streets even before cars and that they seem kind of like the, the natural agency to enforce traffic laws after cars, but it's kind of that efficiency gained. And so police departments were seeing the efficiencies of having one officer do both criminal investigations and traffic law enforcement, which we see today. And the reason why that's such a common practice throughout the country is because, let me go back to the Carroll decision and the automobile exception. Carroll still required probable cause or reason to believe that a crime is being committed which means that the police still need to give reasons to stop a car under Carroll. But traffic violations completely make that unnecessary, right? Because everybody commits a traffic violation. And so the merger of the two functions, traffic law enforcement and criminal investigation, basically has allowed the police, the police to stop a car for a traffic violation. And then during that traffic stop, gather more evidence that can satisfy reasonable suspicion and then satisfy probable cause to search. And they don't really have to get there because they can just ask for consent now. And so it's it's become really easy. Fourth Amendment laws have made it really easy to use a traffic stop to, uh, to go beyond just the traffic citation. The Supreme Court has curbed that back a little bit with respect to drug sniffing dogs that we mentioned in the lightning round, but not really. It's still a really common practice to use traffic stops for to, to search a car for more. And um, how do those traffic stops impact people of color as opposed to white people today differently? So one thing I, I know I, I should say is that data is spotty because we don't have data from every jurisdiction, but from the data that we do have and the studies that I have read, in terms of stopping people for traffic violations or traffic citations may or may not vary by race, depending on the jurisdiction. But what is consistently, a consistent disparity by race is how people are treated during a traffic stop. So police officers have discretion to treat a driver with courtesy or to treat them as a criminal suspect. That's where we see differences by race. Black and brown people disproportionately get treated like a criminal suspect, meaning they get asked to step out of the car more frequently than others. They are frisked more frequently, disproportionately. They're asked for their cars to be searched at a disproportionate rate. And so the, the intrusiveness on their privacy, the invasion on their privacy, they experience disproportionately than others. Going back to the beginning of this bucket, our, our conversation. So the traffic stop opens the door to all of this other investigatory action, which is 
justified and muddied by the Fourth Amendment. And you're saying for people of color, they are much more likely to be subject to that door opening, you know, to all of that investigatory action. Okay. And can you talk about some of the reforms that are being put in place or being suggested around how to change the way we deal with traffic stops to ameliorate this disparity? I have started advocating for separating traffic law enforcement from criminal law enforcement and have two different agencies handle each as a way to to eliminate the abuses that come from investigatory traffic stops. And I've also supported the use, uh, whatever means we can take to reduce the the interactions between human enforcers and drivers because now today what we didn't have a hundred years ago we have technology today to do a lot of that and and much more effectively than human enforcers because they they more consistently uh, cite violators so I'm talking about traffic cameras I'm talking about automated license plate readers are controversial because of the enormous privacy implications of that technology but the thing is please a, a lot of police departments are already using it. And if they are already using it, either we shut it down or if we can't, why don't we use it to cite drivers for driving with a revoked or suspended license rather than having human enforcers pull them over and then leading to all those other consequences that um, we talked about. Uh, so using technology. And I, I also want to make the point that we have to use technology reasonably because of the big data privacy implications involved with with tech and we need to make sure that you know traffic cameras to give an example are um, installed in equitable ways that, that they're not concentrated in poor minority communities but if we can use technology reasonably i think it's a great solution to minimize the encounters on the street between individuals and the police. So the first is to separate traffic law enforcement from criminal law enforcement. The second is using technology to reduce human encounters or encounters with the police. And the third is something that even law enforcement were preaching back in the 20s and 30s is we need to use better engineering and design to create safer streets instead of relying on police officers and human enforcers to maintain safe streets. And so there's a whole range of tools that we can use to promote safety on the streets, which is still a huge concern. It's even after a hundred years, we haven't managed to get to vision zero, but there are ways to do that without using police officers. Are there any municipalities or communities that are already taking these steps? So yes, and that's the exciting thing. So Berkeley is studying how to do this and hopefully they'll get into implementation phase in a year or two, there's a bill in the state of Florida to create a non-police agency to enforce most of the traffic laws. I believe Cambridge is having talks about doing this. There were there were a few more cities in California. Philadelphia also announced it. So it is catching on, and it would be interesting to see how that how it gets implemented. Some of the other ones that caught caught my eye, which I think you mentioned earlier, but we should highlight is places where there have been tragedies that came out of traffic stops. So I think in Minneapolis, where Philando Castile was was stopped and killed, you mentioned Sandra Bland. And 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 then you also mentioned in your book there were two two other places where I didn't realize that the traffic stop was the original 
interaction. You mentioned Martin Luther King spent one of his nights in jail for a speeding or the Watts riots or rebellions originated over a traffic stop. So I hadn't conceived of those as part of the harm of this current traffic enforcement regime until you pointed it out in your book. The last area of questions I have is that you had this really disruptive technology that defined basically the 20th century in America and the law had to adapt to respond to it. And I feel like we are going through something similar in the 21st century where we have disruptive and sort of society defining technology in the form of data and cell phones and the ubiquity of computers in in our lives. And the courts are trying to figure out how to do this. And I wonder if there is any lesson to be learned from the car that we should be carrying forward in the in the 21st century as we create new law to to deal with new technology i think the the big bird's eye takeaway is that constitutional law is a poor inadequate tool for weighing the pros and cons of technology and also how we want law enforcement to use technology. It's such a blunt tool. And to craft rules governing the use of technology in law enforcement through litigation, through motions to suppress, it's a really poor way to go about it. And I, I, the, the technologies that we have today raise very similar questions about, or evoke very similar, uh, similar paths with respect to the automobile. But I think one of the lessons is that our legislatures need to be at the forefront of this, not courts, and figuring out how law enforcement is going to use this, what, what would be the regulations that govern their use of technology, and really make sure that local departments throughout the country abide by them through you know, conditioning federal grant money to it or something like that. It, it's just the way that we've done it with the Fourth Amendment in cars, this haphazard proceduralism through motions to suppress, where you know these decisions get made only in the context of defendants who, who, who have who want to suppress the evidence of their guilt, is not the way to protect every individual's Fourth Amendment rights. I think that's a great place to end. Is there anything I haven't asked that you think is important to touch on, or anything you want to amend or modify? No, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, It was a fun way to spend the hour. Yeah, no, as I said, I, I really genuinely enjoyed the book. It was a joy to talk to you and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Take care. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to the folks at PCJ for their support and to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. 